Welcome to old school. ShopTYT.com. There, go ahead, check. Yeah. We have All a right, combination. Did you take care of that yet? This is a brand new combination for everybody. Two Davids and Mark. I, yeah. We just assembled this last minute, so I don't have a cute name for it or uh, you know, a, a little title for it. But that's who we are. David Schuster, say hello. You're a regular. Hello, everybody. David Schuster here. ShopTYT.com brought to you by ShopTYT.com. Okay. I've mentioned it three times. That should be good for at least the first 45 minutes, sure. right? And wow. Mark, if you needed to get coffee, where would you now, purchase your strong coffee? coffee? Of course, because of they, course. Uh, they they have coffee, they harvest coffee, and they ship coffee with conscience. That's what I'm looking for when I uh, have my coffee in the morning is uh, coffee with conscience. Too strong are we drunk? Coffee. Is that what's going on here? No, we're just trying. That's all we are. <laughs> well, I'm going to start with. Well, who are you? Oh, You're something. Dave Kohler. Yes, I'm Dave Kohler. Uh, actually, you know, there are still people out there who remember me when I used to be on air more often. A few, two, three months ago, I went to a a book reading by this podcaster, Mark, uh, Mike Duncan. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, he he does history podcasts. He had a book on the Marquis de Lafayette. I went to hear him out. And there was a guy in the audience, we were all masked up, and he said, are you Dave Kohler? It was, it, he was wow, more- Wow, he recognized you through your mask? Yes, and he was much more happy to see me than to sit in the audience and listen to this podcaster talking about his book. It, it, made, it made his day, and it made my day. I felt great about it. And your brother was so happy about it. <laughs> ah, <laughs> no, yeah, no, no, this was real. No, he remembered legit. Well, you know, legit. Legit. But people know, I think, on some level, but maybe newcomers do not is that Dave Kohler is one of the OGs of TYT. So as you've seen TYT populated by a lot of different faces and you know all these terrific personalities and contributors, TYT was born of a handful of people. I mean, literally a handful. And that handful was made up in part of Dave Kohler. I mean, so it really is like you know the original mod squad <laughs> Was uh, was Dave Kohler, so it's kind of a he. It, you have that, Dave, and then you know as a result, everybody was doing everything back then in the early days, right? Including being on air. So yes, thank you for explaining that. That that's the context of why it's still somewhat surprising, but not surprising that somebody would recognize me randomly in a. Well, uh, I would think if Mark Thompson, if anybody recognized you, I mean, I would think that if somebody heard your voice in a crowd. They would say, mm. I know that guy, that's Mark Thompson. How often does that happen to you? Yeah, a lot. I, the, the voice does, uh, it, it's I mean, it's really cool. I mean, it's flattering, uh, you know, that that would be the case. And, and it's, uh, it happens a lot, you know, usually if I speak, people can, I mean, immediately they lock up as, uh, uh, oftentimes they really literally will lock up on, you know, my name or on, on TYT, of course, certainly when I'm wearing the hat. <laughs> No, but it does happen, Dave. You're, 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 you're. Uh, if I can say sweet, you're sweet to point that out. Yeah, no, uh, that a, I have a, that voice that kind of is recognizable. You're right. You got, yeah. you, no, you got great pops, and it's a very distinctive. I mean, some people would say, well, they've got a great voice and a great broadcast. You have very, you have a great voice, and it's also very distinctive. Yeah, say. thanks. Well, I've done a lot of stuff, you know, very uh, hundreds and hundreds of hours of primetime narration and all this stuff. So it's been out there in the in the zeitgeist for a while, and now. Uh, 
now I just get to reap the benefits of uh, some people saying that they uh, they like it, that they like the work or whatever it is. So yeah, you're right, it's uh, kind of cool. So thank right, you. Let's, for let's go to one of those things you've done. Cause I've been meaning to ask you this on many old schools, but we always get sidetracked by Jenks topics, which admittedly are much better than this topic, <laughs> but Jenks not here. Uh, so I can't stand it when the local weather people say, you know, temperatures tomorrow are going to be warmer. That's not what temperature is. Temperature measures how the temperature, you know, how the heat and the cold. The temperatures are higher or lower. They're not warmer. Why do they deliberately have to be so ignorant <laughs> on local weather? Are you? Uh, it's as though Dave has been just taken over by an 85-year-old man who lives by himself, <laughs> watches TV, and goes. I'm gonna slam out this email. How come you weather people say the temperatures are warmer? There's no <laughs> such thing as warmer. Um, you're of course sort of right-ish because colloquially people speak that way. They speak warmer, cooler. I mean, that's why. I mean, why do weather people? And and by the way, for those who may not know, I did the weather uh, television for many many years, which is why Dave's asking me this question. <laughs> but uh, I um I just because if you don't know that, it would be like that's an odd thing for him to mention. But um the uh, uh, the way people speak is that way. You know, it's going to be warmer tomorrow. Temperatures. That's it's going to be warmer. Tomorrow. I know you're saying temperatures are going to be warmer tomorrow. You're right. Uh, it's a it's a weird way. I, I I don't know if I said it or not. I probably mm -hmm. did, and it was a. Uh, I, you know, I, I think we we say things like warmer temperatures tomorrow than we saw today. It's just colloquialism, I think. You know. Oh, you're so telling you're telling me to chill out. You're telling me. I would, yeah. I take an edible or something and relax about it. Well, there's also a certain, I suppose, lack of precision that weather people get to get away with that a lot of, say, straight, you know, newscasters don't. And the reason I say this is in the newsrooms that I've worked with in local newsrooms. The weather and the sports guy are usually like the most popular characters at the station among the viewing audience. When I worked in Arkansas, they listed, you know, they asked who are the top three most popular people of the state. And this was like 1995. So Bill Clinton was president. He didn't make the top three. The number one was the local station, KETV sports guy. The number two was the weatherman whose name was Ned Permy. Now, Ned was sort of an interesting figure because he, you know, liked to. Tip back a few in the parking lot during breaks. <laughs> uh, nothing wrong with that. He never missed the forecast or missed a slot. But you know, he could say anything. He could say it's raining cats and dogs on a beautiful sunny day. But people just loved him. He could get yeah. away with anything. So I'm sure he probably said all the time, "Oh yeah, temperatures are it's getting warmer. It's getting colder." And even though some people might have said, "Well, you no, know, they just they just love the guy. You love the weather person. You love the sports guy." So maybe they just get lazy because yeah, of that. that's part of the uh, DNA of those characters on a show is that their their lovability. I, I would suggest that maybe that's changing a little bit. There's sort of a faux credibility that uh, is established among some of these uh, characters, but but still fundamentally, the chance to relate to the audience in in a way that you know is generally positive is is with the weather person. I thought what you were going to say. It's interesting you you know you went for. I thought we were going to say is that we are remarkable from the standpoint I'm talking about weather people in that we can be wrong as much as we are and so <laughs> profoundly wrong, and still pay no career price for it. You know what I mean? There's a you know built into the job is like a thirty percent depending on where it was. Certainly in Arkansas, it's true. Yeah. Um, you know that you're gonna you're gonna miss some severe weather. You've got uh, you know changing weather. I was a weather guy on my way up in Denver, Colorado. We used to say if you don't like the weather, wait 20 minutes. 
where you have these massive changes in weather. I mean, literally temperatures could drop 40 and 50 degrees and suddenly. And if you know, if you miss those, still somehow the audience, you know, forgave the fact that, you know, that's the way it is, the computer models, blah, blah, blah. So I think you're right. It's a it's the personality of the show, and they're ready to overlook most anything because of the personality. And I also get the sense that most people think, most people sort of know that weather is sort of imperfect science, that it's hard to predict perfectly what's gonna happen. And so we're all sort of in this boat together of, okay, yeah, it looks like it could be snow tomorrow, but it could be sleep, but man, I'm gonna feel a lot better knowing that that likable guy or gal on the TV is telling me all about it. And so maybe yeah, they just I, they give them a pass. Good point, I mean, I, I what I'm anxious to know is in the next 10 years, what happens? I mean, local news has held its own a bit during this time, but network television, as you're aware, I'm talking about old school legacy media has mm. taken a huge hit. I mean, you've got even hit shows with numbers that would have been embarrassing 10 years ago, you know, but now they're just happy to hang on to some audience. This, what we're doing now, of course, is um, is far more in the wheelhouse of you know of of many people who take in media, and so when you talk about cutting the cord and going with uh, you know YouTube TV or you know Pluto or you know all these different ways that you can take in uh, media, it, it makes me wonder what the state of local news will be. It's really uh, it's kind of an old older audience, and they will age out and eventually. That local news, regardless, I, I I used to like local news for, and I still do kind of for the, maybe it's because I worked in it for a long time, but for the sense of the community you have, I don't think they necessarily tell you the most important things going on in the community, because the most important things, tragic as they are, are, are not the hit and run down there at third and main. You know what I mean? That is not the thing that affects the community at large uh, most uh, dramatically, you know? It affects the community of the people involved in that hit and run. But uh, I think still the local news gives you a sense of the community or maybe it's just a connection to that community. And so even as they continue to have audience, I wonder over time if that legacy media that they're part of is just gonna go away and they're gonna go away with it or have to change dramatically. You know, Dave, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about sort of local news and where it's going. But I'll tell you from my own personal experience that of all the places that I've worked, and I've worked, you know, local news in Arkansas in the mid 90s, and I worked at Fox News, then MSNBC, then Current TV, then Al Jazeera America, then I 24 goes on and on. The place where I felt like I had the greatest sort of connection and the most impact was in local news in Arkansas. And part of it was, yeah, we covered murders and fires and all that kind of stuff. We also, the station was great about letting us do investigative, investigative journalism and whether it was the, the mayor of North Little Rock who was corrupt and had everybody, all the local employees switch insurance because he was on the board of another insurance company and wanted everybody to have that insurance even though they had to pay higher premiums. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. But you felt like, I mean, you felt like you're really, really having an impact on the community. And I, I felt like people were far more connected to us. I was more connected to the people that I lived with uh, and the, you know, the surround the neighbors and all that sort of thing. Um, and it was um it was strange because even I think back then, maybe starting in the 90s, local stations were starting to cut back on staff. And instead of you know having you know photographer, um, you know, sometimes people reporters would have to go out and shoot their own stuff. So they were just starting to cut back even though I felt even starting back then that there was so much of a greater connection to the local community than the network broadcasts and certainly international and, and cable. But um, Dave, your thoughts? Well, I, I, yes, as we watch the decline of legacy uh, media, especially TV and local news, I, I actually agree with Mark that 
you do get a sense of community from local news, but that could be its salvation if anyone cared or if smart people went into it and, and they gave it a try. I think local news could be really good and could survive much longer than the decline of other traditional TV shows because it's a, a great opportunity to get people to know their community. They just have to adjust the stories. They have to have, be smarter, not just about saying the temperatures are warm, but all their stories. They, they <laughs> just have to take them a little more seriously, get a little away from the sensationalism, do, but keep enough of that to keep the audience. I think there's a lot of potential for local news, but I, I don't see it being fulfilled anywhere. Uh, I, I don't know, what am I applying to be the program director for a local news station? Maybe, maybe I have the vision. To, uh, well, I mean, one of the problems that you'd have is that you're part of this machine, which is legacy media, and people are getting away from that machine. So primetime television viewing is down, and that's your lead in as a local newscast. Uh, you, you, in other words, you live in an ecosystem that is created by this CBS, NBC, Fox, uh, etc. And as people unplug, it's gonna be harder and harder for local news that is part of that ecosystem to somehow survive in the way they have. I kind of agree with you. what you said with, with kind of minor tweaks, I'd suggest in some cases. Yeah, minor you could do tweaks. some, if you could do some of the stuff that Schuster talks about, like you know the investigative stuff, even once in a while, you would see something of great value and it would raise the profile of your newsroom. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, I just think as people pull away from the mothership, of the Fox network and the NBC network and the CBS network. I think you're just gonna see local news begin to pay the price. Yeah, it'll be brought down as everything around it collapses. But it's a shame because as we've established here, I think it has potential, it could be really good. Especially like during the pandemic, local news, one of the stations here in LA would post the numbers every day. They'd say, oh, in LA County, this many people work uh, tested, you know, there were this many cases, this many hospitalizations, and this many deaths, and then they move on to something else. That's useless. That information, the data, data-wise, it's useless. There's no context. They don't compare it to yesterday or last week. But if with a few little tweaks, that could have been a very valuable uh, source of information, telling the audience how their community is doing. It's funny yeah. the the citizen app. I just just quickly, I was going to say because when you mentioned the uh, like these apps, where I wouldn't necessarily expect to see that information, they're stepping up with updating mm -hmm. that information. Yes. And so I think you see increasingly little uh, super hyper localized things yeah. that, like Citizen App that, that come to try to fill in some of those gaps. You know, Citizens App reminds me of, um, so here where I live in Connecticut, there's a local Facebook group for our town. And there's probably, you know, maybe two or 3,000 people now who are part of this Facebook group and people put, all kinds of information. There's, you know, they people say they witness things. They see a bear walking across Route Seven. Whatever it is, people take pictures. They put videos, and so it's really become this place where if you want to know what's going on in your small town of ten thousand people, you go on Facebook, and there your neighbors providing you with information, and hopefully the information is accurate. But it's, you know, it's really interesting, and I find myself more and more spending a lot more time now looking at the the local blogs and the local Facebook posts and I would ever spend, you know, there's no there's no local station that covers this particular part of Connecticut. It covers a whole sort of area. Um, but even then, um, I don't think, you know, my time spent in front of watching local news keeps keeps diminishing and, and more and more time spent if I want local news, just finding it out from the neighbors that are posting. Yeah, it's interesting just on that point, because I think you're right that citizen journalism is sort of being carried 
through those media that are associated with the uh, next doors of the world, the uh, uh, citizen app. Uh, and there are a bunch more and even just Facebook groups, you know. The problem with it is that you lose the kind of journalistic integrity. And I know people can even roll their eyes when I say that, but there is some journalistic integrity and some um, a rigor about the way stories are reported when they're from some of the uh, larger journalistic institutions. And that doesn't mean that there aren't forces at play and that there aren't uh, aspects of larger media that are uh, bad, agenda driven, and actually maybe pervert the truth. But that said, there is nothing really in the world of citizen journalism to provide you any sort of uh, 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 confidence that what you're hearing is in any way accurate or vetted or, you know, it, and so you, uh, even as we embrace some of these things, I worry that, you know, they may not do the greatest job getting us accurate information, you know. Sure, and the problem with hyperlocal is by definition, the audience is tiny. So how do you make that into a successful business? The, yeah. You gotta aggregate all that. So I promise that we will not talk about weather much longer, but I've been waiting months to say this. I just wanna get it off my chest. You Both of you can ignore it and then we can move on to some other topic. But the other thing that drives me crazy <laughs> is when the weather people say, well, tomorrow there's a 10 to 30% chance of rain depending on where you live. and like what? How is that in any way useful to me? Is it ten or thirty? And if it depends on where I live, I want to know where I live. Whether it's a chance of rain or not. so, useless, useless. Well, well that's <laughs> again. That depends on where you walk into the movie. I mean, within the context of what you've just said, of course, it sounds absurd. But if it's preceded by, well, if you're near the foothills, there's probably an increasing chance that you'll see rain. We'll call it thirty percent. If you're in the flats. Probably only a 10% chance that you'll right. see anything. Oh, and then at the end of the run, you'd say, so you can see you got a chance of rain up there anyway, 10 to 30%, depending on where you live, now has a context if you were watching earlier. Maybe it was not you know, said in the most elegant way, but I think, Dave, you are really holding these people to too high a stand. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Caller, let's just point out for people who are maybe not so familiar with the Young Turks or with old school, you're in Southern California, right? Right. So there's no, I mean, there's nothing to say in the weather. Yeah, I mean, a 10 to 30% chance of rain. Okay, so just, I don't know, maybe carry around an umbrella for those few <laughs> occasions when it rains out there, when it's not 70 degrees with a slight breeze coming in from the ocean. I'm mean, talking, it's been 22 degrees where I am. And you're complaining about a 10 to 30% chance of rain in Southern California? Are you serious? Hey, look, Come on, man. Our weather is more tranquil. Doesn't mean we're not allowed to complain about it. I'm on Kohler's <laughs> side on this. We are allowed to. Complain. We got a bunch of crap going on here related to climate and weather. And uh, Dave, you're allowed to complain. I just wish there were complaints were a, a little more on point. That's my <laughs> my my complaints are with your complaints. I understand. Right? Not with your ability to complain. Well, here's oh. the complaint that I got today related to uh, to my weather. And I, I was just talking about this with Dave earlier. Um, so. You know, we've gotten a lot of snow here in this part of Connecticut, and uh, and so we sometimes have things delivered to the house. And this delivery person came, and she pulled into our driveway, and suddenly I hear the knock on the door. Can you help me push my car out? She was really mad because she pulled into our driveway and didn't know how to drive out with the snow and ice, and said, you know, you guys have responsibility to shovel your driveway. You have to keep it clean for the delivery people. And I'm thinking, no, most of the delivery people they just stay on the street and they walk in. But also, you're 
an idiot for not being able to figure out how to get there. And she kept saying, push my car. She was not nice about it. She kept saying, push my car, push my car out of here. And I'm like, I can't push a 2000 pound vehicle uphill in ice and snow and get it out. That's not gonna work. Let me take your car and I'll drive it out for you. No, that's not gonna work. And she kept spinning the wheels, spinning wheels. Finally, she got so frustrated. She opens the door and says, there. And I'm like, is this stick shift or automatic? She's automatic. Okay, well, you know, it took me about 10 seconds, turn the wheel a little bit, put on the gas a little bit, and I was able to get it out, no problem. Does she say thank you? Of course not. She's like, next time you need to shovel your snow. And I'm thinking, okay, good luck to you. <laughs> and I'm like, what? You know, you could have at least said thank you, or instead, you know, you, you, you she's maybe she's just mad because she's a delivery person. She's having to deliver in the snow and the ice and it's cold and it's probably not the greatest job. But I thought, you know, a little bit of humility, a little bit of kindness, say, hey, thanks for helping me get my car out. Instead, you just like, you make me feel bad because I haven't shoveled the driveway because I haven't gotten rid of the snow and the ice. And now you're just gonna be a jerk about it? Come on. It's I a shame that, that that it wasn't a UPS truck driver who got stuck. You could have lived your childhood dream and driven a UPS truck for a couple <laughs> yeah, of seconds. But that's the thing is the UPS people know to stay on the street. They would never pull into a driveway. Yeah, did you tell her that before you got to say, you know, UPS would never do this. Those guys <laughs> no, know what they're the, doing. The, I, the thing I was regretting when she walked away, I, said, I thought, you know what? I am so stupid. If I had just like turned this thing on and just walked out there and just started recording my interaction, oh, yeah. I would have yeah. one of these like YouTube viral. Yeah, yeah. Because she was a right. Karen who was mad at me and mad at the world and mad at the snow and mad at the ice. And you know, I missed my opportunity there. I remember uh, going to Connecticut. I'd never been. It was my sophomore year of college. And I went with my roommate. A uh, guy named Bill, really nice guy, and uh, didn't know much about his family, but he was so nice to. Uh, I didn't have a car or anything. I think it might have been a holiday or some holiday. He said, "Hey, come down to my house in Connecticut. Well, we're at, you know for just a long weekend." So I went with him, and it was winter. Just to, this is why I'm thinking of it. This story that you're telling it reminded me so clearly of of Bill and this driveway. So we get there, and he's got a nice. At the time, it's kind of a muscle car, a Camaro. Mm. And I thought, wow, Bill's got a Camaro. This is cool. We drive back to his place. And it was in a town in Connecticut that you may know, I'm sure you do know, called Darien. Darien, Darien sure, a couple towns yeah. over, Fairfield so County. Yeah. I, uh, uh, we, we're going to Darien, Connecticut again. I don't know, Connecticut, whatever. Uh, we pull up, and there is this huge, biggest BMW I've ever seen. It was a seven series, like, you know, 740, whatever, IL, the long one. And it's stuck in the snow going up, trying to get into Bill's driveway, the driveway. And uh, in it is Bill's dad, okay? So we pull up just in time and there's all this snow on the ground. It's kind of like the driveway you know, at your house. Uh, I'm sure there hadn't been a clearing, I guess. They hadn't had a chance to or whatever the situation was. So he's just spinning the tires and we uh, pull right up, we both get out, we start doing that thing where you're rocking the car back and forth, right? And as the car rocks back and forth, like the fourth time it rocks forward, my gaze goes over the car toward the house, which is off in the distance. And it's this huge house and this driveway goes way up. <laughs> and I remember thinking as I'm pushing this car and thinking, wow. Bill is 
rich. <laughs> he is so rich. And it was like the first encounter I'd had, at least you know, where I sort of was a sort of formed adult as a sophomore in college, where I my good pal has like a lot of money. And this is gonna be interesting to see what it finally. So we got the car rocked out up there and into this home, which was just, you know, stunning. And it was like this. New England, you know, old money feel. It was kind of wild. It was kind of wild. He lived next yeah, to Dave Brubeck. The uh, remember the uh, jazz musician, jazz musician yeah. Dave Brubeck. Yeah. He lived next door. So, well, well, we have no jazz musicians who live next door to us. We have got no BMWs, no long driveways, <laughs> short driveways, smaller house. Um, but I will say that Fairfield County, and that's you know one of the weird things about living here. Fairfield County, I think, is the wealthiest county in the United States. Per capita, it's just like it's it's off the charts, and it is mansion after mansion after mansion, all set back from the main roads, all in the woods, lots of swimming pool. I mean, it's just it's and it's gorgeous and it's winding hills and it's, but you do have a lot of people with some very long driveways, <laughs> and this being Connecticut, um, there are a lot of people who make a lot of good money shoveling driveways, clearing driveways, just like <laughs> there are a lot of people out here who make a lot of good money. Cutting grass. Um, when I was growing up, it was like, no, you shoveled your own driveway, you cut your own grass. I try to do that here. It doesn't. It doesn't work out so well. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I I remember this article I read in Slate.com a long time ago, 20 years ago. So they did a survey of the safest places to live in the U.S. from the point of view of natural disasters and weather-related things. You know, Florida is no good because of hurricanes. The West is no good because of fires and uh, earthquakes in California and tornadoes you got, and it's too cold up north, and there's too much rain in the south. The place they found was the ideal spot, safest spot, was Connecticut from the point of view of natural oh. disasters. Wow. And as I thought about it, yeah, it made sense to me. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey, a little, also pretty safe, but I guess uh, a you know it's more impacted by hurricanes than Connecticut, so it drops down. Well. My experience with Connecticut, and again, I've only, so our family was in Manhattan and when the pandemic began because of some health issues, we were, we were told, you know, try to outrun COVID. We rented a farmhouse in Eastern Connecticut when my wife and I both realized, okay, the kids are having a better time being, you know, having a house, having a yard than being in an apartment. And we thought, okay, when we start to work again, uh, we'll be a little bit closer to New York, but we're still gonna stay in the burbs. The problem with the town where we we live is that um, whenever there's a pretty heavy rainstorm, uh, the infrastructure has some some issues here, and so the uh, the utility poles and the the power lines are all outdoors. And so whenever there's heavy rain, the, a lot of branches and you know, trees come down, and so literally, I'd say the power goes out every third thunderstorm. Um, and so Asher and the gang at the, the Turks will know because the number of shows where all of a sudden the signal goes out because, oh, sorry, we're having a heavy rainstorm, we're gonna lose power. And it's like, you know, it's like Bermuda's triangle. They and they joke about, oh yeah, you know, that's just, you know, that's you, everybody, everybody out here has a generator. You have to have a generator because of the number of times that you lose power. And I'm thinking, okay, so far so good, at least in the in the winter time, the snow has been, it's been so cold that the snow is not so thick and it doesn't stay on the power lines. So we haven't lost power yet, but that's coming. Uh, and it's just a weird, you know, maybe maybe it, it was great that Connecticut can't get hit by hurricanes or tornadoes, but I'll be damned, you know, we're gonna lose power in the next four weeks, I guarantee. Well, anyway, uh, that's my rant. yeah, uh, I mean, maybe my info is 20 years old and maybe no place is safe <laughs> anymore from uh, mother nature. But. Well, you know, Connecticut's got the Lyme disease, don't mean to. <laughs> yes. Don't mean that's to rain on the parade, but uh, or join the parade. That's where it's already raining. But um, 
Oh, I yeah, Lyme the number disease. of texts I, I got Lyme disease our kids. In, uh, I got Lyme disease in Maryland, actually. Well, so I know it's all over the Northeast. And now I think it's even in parts of the West, so. Yeah, you're always checking your kids for ticks. I've pulled off probably you know a bunch of ticks myself. You romp around in the yard and then there's this little dot on you and you pull that thing off like, oh, that's a tick. Well, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so. I'll tell you. I mean, it's if you if you're not used to it though. I, I went back. Um, I mean, now we know where I got it, but I went to uh, Maryland, uh, the rural part of Maryland, is a farming community, and I went there for a wedding from the West Coast. So fly in Washington D.C., landed at uh, BWI, uh, Baltimore Washington International, and uh, went to the wedding. Got back on the plane, flew back uh, home. I then develop all of these symptoms. I get a, a rash, I get a sore throat. I mean, but I got really bad sore throat and headaches and the muscle aches and no one knew what it was. No doctor on the West Coast, did. they thought it was the flu. So it goes on and on and on after a couple of weeks, it gets worse and worse. I start to get um, uh, my joints start to blow up. Oh, like damn. rheumatoid arthritis was crazy, crazy. Anyway, I'm uh, uh, long story longer. Um, I had a I had a heart involvement. I was wearing a heart monitor. They didn't still know what it was. Ugh. And that's and these are all symptoms I'm describing that are classic Lyme disease symptoms. Okay, classic. It's like that wheel of fortune turning all of the letters and the contestant still going. I'm I'm working. I'm trying <laughs> to figure it out. But because West Coast doctors don't see it out here as much, it was a problem. And then finally, uh, in the uh, 39th day, I think, that I had it. I remember I used to, I had it written down. They diagnosed it and I started the therapy, which is really simple. You know, it's a doxycycline, it's an antibiotic that works so effectively, and boom, knocked it out. But uh, yeah. I, I I only grabbed the Lyme disease because, of course, it comes from Lyme, Connecticut, doesn't it? That's where they got the. That's right. Yeah. But I, as I say, I think you can get it anywhere in New England. And, you know, now it's been exported to places even beyond New England. So. COVID has just swept through New York, Connecticut, the whole East Coast. Everybody's got it, everybody on the street, kids have had it. Uh, I tested positive two weeks ago, uh, no symptoms, was fine. One of my kids had a fever for a day, but had to be out of school for five days until the symptoms were gone, the whole thing. What's it like out in LA? I mean, has it really hit out there? Uh, well, all right, I'll start, but I I don't like my answer. I mean, because the only thing I know is what I see in the local news. <laughs> And yeah, statistically, it's really hit out here. And yeah, a lot of people at TYT have gotten it, and a lot of people I, I know, but I haven't felt that it's terrorized LA. In fact, I was out quite a bit this past week, and there are people out who don't look very nervous to me. They're just going through their lives. So there's a disjoint there in my experience. Uh, so let's see what Mark. Well, do you go inside places, Dave? Do you go like to eat maybe at a restaurant indoors or do you? So, all right, so but very, very, very rarely. Basically, no, I, I have on occasion gone to a restaurant in the past you know, couple of months, but it's it's pretty rare that I do that. So, and so it's changed the rhythm of your life, right? You used to go indoors to restaurants. Yes. And, yeah, but right. not by my, I mean, I have to admit that or it's more my, out of respect for the wishes of my wife, I, I, I'm not that concerned about it. But I'm living by a more strict stand, uh, code, and I'm not. Uh, I've been very much locked down for these COVID times, more than a lot of people, and I don't yeah. have comorbidities or anything. So uh, it's just out of respect for for what my wife wanted, and it's fine. 
But but uh, are there any other ways that you respect what your wife wants, or is that the only one? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, we're still I, uh, <laughs> we're going strong, so there must be a lot of respect there. I uh, I do think that uh, what uh, even though Dave I know says that he you know has kind of been locked down. I think what he's talking about is uh, very much the case in general in L.A., which is that people are trying to go on with their lives as best they can, but there's definitely cheating toward outdoor venues, and there's much more of that possible, of course, in Los Angeles than there might be in, you know, certainly in Connecticut, you know what I mean, or in the Northeast. So uh, I, I think there is that. I, I I do also agree with what he was saying about local news. And if you watch the news, I mean, it's it's alarming, it's scary. I mean, that's what gets clicks, that's what gets eyeballs. You're always trying to, but the numbers are concerning, you know, when you look sure. at. Um, how the hospitals are doing and you know uh, sort of the stress of COVID on healthcare workers. These are all real stories that I think represent reality. Um, so that all those, but in terms of how it affects your life, all those things that I just mentioned do get into your psyche, right? And so you begin to feel as though, well, I have a public responsibility also to be vigilant. It's a little bit of what Dave feels toward his wife. You know, I think we feel toward, uh, you know, just people in general. So. Uh, I guess the answer is it's it's definitely affected our life, and um, we try to be vigilant. You know, we haven't gotten it in the house yet, but you know, I I, I wouldn't well, be surprised if it finds well, its, its way. Well, it's also think not only affects you know our psyche, but also the psyche of all of our friends and neighbors and relatives. Because it was it was so interesting a couple of weeks ago when I thought, okay, this is my turn. So I put out you know put out a note on Twitter and said, after two years of trying to outrun this thing, it's finally caught up with me. Tested positive, thankfully, you know, mild to no symptoms whatsoever. Same with family members, but so it goes. And the number of people who reached out who I had not heard from in a long time, like, oh my God, that's terrible that you got it. Are you okay? Is everything gonna be all right? And I thought to myself, yeah, I'm fine. You know, it's just sort of, it's more just sort of interesting that after talking about this for two years, now I'm talking about it with my own family about, okay, now it's our turn. But if I didn't know better, I would have thought this is kind of like, you know, just a cold or a flu. I mean, I was sort of like a day of feeling exhausted um, and a little bit of a scratchy throat and some sniffles, and that was it. And my daughter, a day of a fever, and you know, the other people in our family. And so it was just, I think it was more like we've we've built up, we've, we have spent so much time, justifiably so, because of people who get seriously ill and 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 you know, the number of people who die from it. But for people who are, you know, again, vaccinated, boosted. It's not that bad for the most part, uh, at least my experience has been and the experience of everybody that I know that's been vaccinated and boosted. And it just goes to show, I think, you know, and this is, I think, one of the regrets, regrets that I have. Yes, I understand why we've all spent so much time having to talk about this. And particularly the first year before the vaccine came, you know, everybody was terrified. If you got it, you know, how serious might it be? And, you know, there were young people, old people who were dying from it. But since we've gotten the vaccine and the booster, I feel like there is this real divide in the country, which is unfortunate because I think if everybody would just said, okay, the vaccine is out, let's get the vaccine, let's get the booster, it wouldn't be a big deal. It really wouldn't. And and you know, all the data, everything again shows, and I've been harping on this, you know, on the shows and everything, but the you are what 12 times more likely to be hospitalized from COVID if you haven't gotten the vaccine, haven't gotten a booster. Yeah. Everybody yeah, I mean, else, uh, you know, you know it feels like the cold. Yeah, but David, if you did, uh, if you said it was no big deal, which is kind of what the last administration said. I mean, you know, Janine Puro and all the uh, Fox News uh, uh, parade of punditry there. They all said it's no big deal. It's going to cycle out like the flu. They did play it down, right, to that right. Uh, population. I, I think you would have had. I mean, had that been the general message, 
uh, I think you would have had an even even lesser you know uh, show in terms of the vaccination. I mean, you couldn't have turned up the scare meter much higher than the media turned it up to get vaccine uh, cooperation and and booster cooperation. <coughs> I think everybody else now it's become a political jihad for so many and and to be fair, some of what you're saying is part of the cross currents that we experience when talking about the question of vaccines. Uh, this variant, not that bad, it infects people, they are breakthrough cases. We hear a lot about the breakthrough cases with those who've had vaccines. You begin to see how the water gets muddied a little bit. And so when we talk about, you know, I wish everybody just got a vaccine, we could have moved on. I guess what I'm trying to say is, I think that was the idea, you created this, uh, you, I mean, the general you, I mean, uh, the government, media, uh, in the zeitgeist, there was this, well, you gotta get vaccinated because this is killing people everywhere in Italy, across Europe, in the UK, and here in the US. And the vaccine numbers were what they were, you know? And now that it's it's kind of rolled around to a variant that doesn't seem as bad, and you detailed it, I think, quite well, that it just sort of rolls through you in uh, largely or in large enough numbers that we don't hear the, uh, horror stories quite as much. I think it, it puts us in a tough spot from the standpoint of the culture and society, don't you think? I agree. And I think, you know, for me, the, the great disappointment is I think, you know, early on in the pandemic, if somebody would have said, okay, there's going to be a vaccine within a year, um, would the will the pandemic still be around after two years? I would have said, absolutely not. You know, everybody's mm -hmm. gonna get everybody's gonna rush to get the vaccine, everybody's gonna get this taken care of, that's gonna be it. And I still there's such regret. I feel um, for you know the people that I know, and unfortunately I know some who decided I'm not getting a vaccine, I'm not gonna get boosted, I'm gonna take my chances. Well, you know what, you're not only taking your chances with yourself and having a far more dangerous case, but you are risking other people that you breathe on. And I just, you know, I, I still can't, I, I, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around, okay, this is a nation that got rid of polio because everybody got the polio vaccine when you were kids in order to go to school. What is it now that is stopping so many people from just getting the COVID vaccine or getting boosted? I mean, it, the, the data is so clear. Um, and it just, you know, that's to me, I think the front, the, the great frustration that I have about the world around me or, or America around me right now is just we are, you know, this division of just, it, I mean, stupidity. Uh, and, and this is this is to me, it's not a big deal to get the vaccine. It's not a big deal to get boosted. It's not a big deal for my kids to, you know, get through Bell and polio vaccine. Why are so many people making this such a big deal? And, the, and and by making it a big deal and being so resistant, we're still having to talk about this damn thing and still having people die from this damn thing. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I will say this one thing. Uh, sorry, Dave, I didn't mean to cut you off at all, but I, but I just want to, uh, you know, in my family, uh, there, as you, as I think in a lot of families, you have some vaccine resistance. You have, you know, I have full-on anti-vaxxers in my family. I, I'm, they're not. They don't make up the majority. But they exist, and one of the reasons somebody in my family is a, is a I, you think you'd have to call this person anti-vaxer is that they had a really bad reaction to the first vaccine. Okay, not the the, the the first of the two, and that's a real thing. I don't think that that's being made up by this family member, right? Uh, and I think that there are legitimate cases. Those stories, they do tend to maybe get amplification or maybe appropriate attention. I don't know, I mean, you can tell me, but there are enough out there that you begin to, 
as you know, to, to belabor the, the reference I made before, muddy the water on it. And so if you're looking for a reason to be vaccine avoidant, the information to throw doubt on it is out there. I think as you suggest, overwhelmingly, it would seem uh, not to represent a threat. But as I say, if you're averse to getting it or you have anxiety about it, there is uh, there's certainly enough, there are enough places you can go that will only reinforce that anxiety. That might be a way to put it. Just today in on the Washington Post online, I noticed something that's also emblematic of the confusion. So on the upper left, there was an article earlier today about how uh, it was saying scientists, you know, a study has shown that the effects of the booster last a long time and we don't need a, a second booster. Down in the lower right, there was an article saying, oh my God, we everyone needs to get a booster <laughs> and, it, and we need to change our policy right now. Now, the way they, the point is the first article was talking about the second booster, the, sec, the bottom right article was talking about the first booster. But if you ignore that, that subtlety, these two articles seem to be completely contradictory. Right there on the front page of the Washington Post, which is a respectable, supposedly responsible publication. So yeah, that's confusing. <laughs> uh, then I have a personal angle. So Jank probably talks about this all the time. Once a year, he and I and a bunch of our friends go on our yearly trip. And we just did it last weekend to Northern California. So it was 10 guys from all around the country flying, getting together in a house, and we went out to restaurants. I was sure, 100% certain we would all get Omicron. Everyone's getting it, even the careful people, much less people who are traveling and then hanging out with other people from other families. But it's been a week and not a single one of us has gotten it. All right, this is an anecdote, I know, but it, it's made me think like, oh, wait a minute, who has been pulling the wool over my, like, all you gotta do is get vaccinated and wear a mask and you're fine and hang out with other responsible people. That's key. And you're gonna be fine. You're not even gonna get it. That's not okay. a good message and it's probably not true, but that's how I feel now. <laughs> because none of us got it. Well, or you might have all you might have already had it. I mean, the great thing with Omicron and people who've been yeah. vaccinated and boosters is that you know there's a large number of people who will get it who are totally asymptomatic. I mean, if if it hadn't been for our daughter having a fever and you know. She or my son who's in pre-K probably picked up their case from school. Children are the big vector right now. But you know, my son positive showed absolutely no signs. My daughter, okay, she had a fever for a day. If I didn't know anything about COVID, I would have just chalked it up to she's got the flu. If I didn't know anything about COVID, I would have never tested myself. I would have never known. Um, so it's, you know, that's also one of the, the tricky things about it is on the one hand, it's too bad that there are asymptomatic symptomatic cases would be better if all of us who got it were symptomatic because then we clearly would know. Um, but I think there's a huge percentage of the population out there that got it and no longer has it and never do. Well, uh, our kids yeah. are not are not vaccinated, right? They're too young. No, they both are. In fact, um, oh. our daughter, um, she she you know she got the vaccination and she got a booster. Um, three weeks later, she's in third grade. Our son, who just turned five, he got it before he turned five. Um, so, you know, at this point he's got the antibodies and that's it. But it's, you know, it, 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 it's again, it's, it's just sort of, it's a strange, it's just sort of such a strange world because, you know, there's so much we don't know to your point. We don't know 
you know, uh, you know, this variant and, and uh, you know, there were a lot of people who sold the vaccines a year ago as, oh, you're never gonna get it. You take the vaccine, get the booster, you're never gonna get it. Okay, well, along comes a variant that at first they thought, you know, maybe the vaccine isn't gonna be effective at all. Then they find out, well, okay, it actually provides some help, but it may not stop you from getting COVID. Okay, so that's, you know, that's changed. But still, I mean, there's so much that people don't know, um, but there is, to your point about anxiety, I feel again, there's so much anxiety that many of us and many families and, and you know many caretakers and people have had to deal with or have anxiety that they've created for themselves in part because the media has been so you know focused on this. And we've, we have been you know, legitimately afraid to be one of those you know 800,000 people in the United States who have been killed by this thing. But at the same time, you know, there's sort of a balance between you gotta live your life. You don't want to teach your kids to be afraid of every shadow they encounter. And so trying to find that balance has been a real struggle. Yeah, but you know, this is more anecdotes. Uh, you told your anecdote, David, about getting uh, testing positive and barely feeling any symptoms. Uh, I, there's a business partner that TYT uses that I email, uh, but he is was out for most of January with. COVID and he described the symptoms to me in an email today. He was so exhausted, he would make lunch for his kid in the morning to go to school and then he was wiped out for four hours. He couldn't do anything, he had to rest before building up enough energy to do something else for 15 minutes and then getting wiped out again. So look, I mean, we've all heard stories of the, how COVID affects people from nothing to very, you know, to hospitalization and death. But uh, yeah, I don't want what that person, either you know was he vaccinated uh, i'm not i assume so yeah i don't know it's a good question I, I don't have a good relationship with this person he just described that to me to explain why he didn't respond to any emails for the past three weeks but you don't I, think I this covid he. is going to help your relationship in any way dave <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> I, I i have to say i'm sorry what i feel i haven't seen colder in so long that i just feel uh <laughs> oddly um like i'm gonna be ribbing him all night that's fine. Uh, I have to um I have to agree though with what Dave was just saying because there really is uh, I wish it was as tidy uh, as uh, as David Schuster is suggesting uh, and I know he doesn't mean to suggest it's no big deal in the cases where it is a big deal. I, I know, but it it is the case that the sort of symptoms that uh, Kohler was just talking about where somebody has intense fatigue that lingers for a long time, fevers that extend out over days. These cases are out there and they're not in such small numbers that we're not aware of personally of people who've experienced them. So again, these cross currents make you know seeing your way to the right course a little bit harder. Again, I'm double vaxxed, I got the booster and I felt like, uh, listen, I wasn't skipping, hunting, humming and running to go get more shots, you know what I mean? That wasn't my view, but I felt it was the best option given the dire circumstance that we were in. All I'm trying to say is that what what Dave's talking about is a constellation of symptoms that I do hear more of. We just most recently, Stephen A. Smith, you know, he went through his whole thing about how doctors said he would have died had he had not the uh, the boosters, and he had a 103 fever that went out over three days, et cetera. So. There's just a lot of different things being reported, and they only reinforce probably uh, the position that you had, you know, right. before the right before right. you heard about it to begin with. So, um, before we hit the break, 
a question though that uh, Dave, you've uh, brought up. I didn't realize that uh, you and Jenk and eight other guys do this sort of annual retreat. Um, tell us a little bit more about, um, is it just guys? Is there any particular tradition that is involved here? Is there the use of, I don't know, illicit drugs, alcohol, anything like that? Where did the, how did this come come to pass? <clears throat> well, uh, Jenk has talked about it in old school many times, so I, I, I'm surprised you haven't heard, but no, it's like a 20 year old tradition. It is just guys. It started, well, probably with a trip to Las Vegas, and then we said, hey, that was fun, let's do it again next year. It's during Martin Luther King weekend, so you get that extra day. It's during a, we would always generally, we used to pick destinations that no wife or girlfriend would want to go during the cold, <laughs> so nobody would be envious. Like we've been to Detroit and Kentucky and, uh, you know, Tennessee, Memphis, is. Mississippi, but then eventually we got a little tired and we started throwing in Miami and California and Colorado and Sedona, Arizona, so a little more desirable. But the tradition goes on, the, the destinations are now desirable rather than undesirable. But it's it's about a 20 year old tradition, Martin Luther King weekend, just the guys. You guys rent a house? Out. Excuse me? You rent a house together? Yeah. Is it? Half the time we rent a house, half the time it's hotels. Uh, depending on the, the city. Well, Dr. King would be proud, Dave. That's all <laughs> right. <laughs> well, the very first trip that we identified as the MLK trip was to Memphis, and we saw the civil, visited the Civil Rights Museum. So it was a proper honoring. Of, of all right. Okay. And you also yeah. had good barbecue, I assume. Yes, of course. And you also went to Graceland. We did go to Graceland. Yeah, okay. Uh, all right. And that was a, a, quite amusing. Yes, great. I've told you the story before, I think on old school. I'm not sure I have about going to Graceland for that Fox show called Encounters, where they send you, it's about uh, the supernatural ghosts, extraterrestrials, that kind of thing, and about the ghosts that inhabited this home. You'll yeah. get this story. It's not a bad story about how Fox flew me to Graceland for this big ghost uh, story, essentially with a woman whose home was haunted by the ghost of Elvis Presley. <laughs> and she had the evidence for it. I'll tell the story. Uh, Can't wait. <laughs> Sorry.